0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Imagine for a moment you are in the backyard with one of your kids, and you are throwing around the baseball or hitting it with a bat, and you're having a good time. And then, work with me here, imagine yourself suddenly transported into the vicinity of Jupiter, in which case everything is two and a half times heavier. And now uh, the baseball feels like a dumbbell and the bat feels like a lead weight, and your muscles are not equipped to carry your own weight in that atmosphere, and you'd rather just give up the fight. You don't want to play anymore. Or imagine yourself just walking innocuously down a hallway. You're on your way to some appointed task. You're not thinking about anything in particular. And then all of a sudden... A door on that hallway blasts open and this thick, hydra-looking, fearsome, saber-toothed monster jumps out at you and you are paralyzed with fear and you fall in a heap. Or thirdly, imagine yourself in a public space in which you know absolutely no one. And yet just as you sit there, simply trying to enjoy your day, You see what looks like a resemblance, or you hear a turn of phrase that reminds you of something, or a thought crosses your mind, and the problem with all of those memories and those resemblances is that they feel like a gut punch. Every one of those three scenarios, either as outlandish or as mundane as they might be, they all describe something that if you're not already familiar with it, you will be, and that is the experience of mourning. Where everything feels heavy and you'd rather give up. Where the most unconventional, predictable moments suddenly turn into this fearsome thing where you just want to crash on a heap and just go into the fetal position. Or where you are just minding your own business, doing what you're supposed to do, and then everything you see reminds you of something that you cannot replace, that you cannot do over, that you cannot change. This is the experience of mourning, and a lot of you in this room know it, and everybody at some point will. It's the universal experience. Last week, we started a new series listening to Jesus' perhaps most celebrated and debated words he ever spoke. They comprise Matthew chapter 5 through 7, and they all have to do with what is called The Sermon on the Mount. He goes upon a hill. He sits down to teach. The disciples gather. And by the time he's done, a crowd has gathered, marveling at the authority with which he speaks. And as we said last week, that Sermon on the Mount has affected people ever since it was said, whether they believed in God or not. And one rather modern voice has called the Sermon on the Mount the highest good. That if you want to order your life around something, you could do far worse than listening to that sermon. Because it outlines for us that if you go there, you will have found something. Found something extraordinary where both love and wisdom come together. And as we explained in the way of an introduction last week, that sermon begins with some rather interesting sayings. Nine of them that have come down to us, we know them as the Beatitudes. They all begin with a blessed R, fill in the blank. And each one of those statements speaks not to something that we aspire to, not to some sort of task that we undertake or some sort of habit that we form. Each one of those Beatitudes describes a character. It is a profile of what has become true of someone when they have become awakened to this wisdom, to this love. That is brought together in Jesus. And that sermon that Jesus utters. Doesn't get very far. Until he brings up. That one thing. That is universally experienced. Mourning. And he ought to. Because what good. Is an outline of the highest good. Unless it has something to say. About when life is anything but good. And so he does. It's one thing to experience mourning, but friends, it's quite another to experience mourning if you believe in God. C.S. Lewis, in a really short book that you may have read, it's a memoir of his experience of grief following the death of his wife, Joy. He says this about the first what it first feels like to mourn in the presence of God. He says, when you're happy, so happy, you have no sense of needing him. So happy that you're tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate. When all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face. And the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside, and after that, silence. This is the dude that spent decades of his life explaining and defending God to people, and now here he is, openly writing about whether he can even trust that God. Last week we said that everybody has a theory of happiness, everybody has a belief about how it happens, where we get it, how we keep it. What's also true of all of us? We all have a theory of mourning why it is, how we respond. I'm gonna, I want to show you here at the beginning two short clips that give you two very different pictures of what it means, what, what a theory of mourning looks like, one of which is from Finding Neverland. Johnny Depp plays uh, J.M. Barry, the, the one who was responsible for Peter Pan. And if you know that backstory, you know that a lot of that was inspired by a relationship he cultivated with a wife, a single mom, and her children and that single mom dies. And here in the very last scene of the film, you're going to see J.M. Barry trying to console that mother's son. So listen to how they cultivate mourning, listen to their theory of mourning. To do back together after I ruined it. And then I saw the play. I just started writing. I haven't been able to stop. She'd be very pleased to know that. Listen. I just spoken with your grandmother. And I'm staying. For good. I'm sorry I was so horrible. Don't worry. It's just... I thought she'd always be here. So did I. But in fact... She is she's on every page of your imagination you'll always have her there always but why did she have to die? Happy she lived, sitting there in the parlor, watching a play about her family, about her boys that never grew up. She went to Neverland. And you can visit her anytime you like. If you just go there yourself. Believing, Peter. Just believe. No I can see you. even in a world that, that will refuse to admit the possibility of the transcendent in their world, any even in a situation in which God never enters into the equation, what do you hear? You hear people reaching for something that is grander, as if to, to say to themselves, what is at an end is not at an end, and if I'll just believe, I can go there. That's a theory of mourning. Now here's another one from Patch Adams. Patch Adams is the, the story of a of a man who was actually in a mental institution and he heals and he he goes to medical school sign me up and here he learns in the course of his studies that that something is something is broken about the system in which patients are not cared for they're just sort of treated as cattle if you will and and here here is Patch Adams wrestling with those um, feelings of of seeing kids of all people kids suffer and die and he comes to the edge of a precipice and here he is in a wrestling match with with god listen to how he goes there so answer me please tell me what you're doing Let's look at the logic. You create man. Man suffers enormous amounts of pain. Man dies. (laughs) Maybe you should have had just a few more brainstorming sessions prior to creation. You rested on the seventh day. Maybe you should have spent that day on compassion. faith he has it is like these trees that we see outside it is bending it is under the weight of the pain and the sorrow and the suffering that he's seen on a daily basis and he's about to snap and then something intersects and interrupts everybody has a theory of mourning we want to listen to jesus's theory of mourning this morning that actually there may be coming joy that comes with the mourning we're going to learn three things and we're going to listen to one verse we're going to learn some hard news, some heartening news, and the highest news. And I thought, as I meditated on this text this week, that I couldn't think of a better person to read this passage than Grant Angel. So, Grant, can you come read us verse 4? And if you will, in honor of God's word, would you stand if you're able? Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Grant. One way you know you can trust someone is that they don't tell you no lies and they don't conceal from you the truth that you need to hear and they don't play the little bait and switch game with you. They tell you straight up. And Jesus here in verse 4, very early in this Sermon on the Mount, goes full disclosure with us. And he offers us, here at the front end of his sermon, the hard truth. And this is the hard truth. Everybody mourns. Including those who take their rest in the idea that there is a God who is both good and powerful. God bless Jesus that here at the beginning of that gospel, where he has come to tell us all that he has come in the name of the Lord, that he has come to preach to us good news, that God is on the move, that his kingdom is in play, That, his, that and, and that kingdom is just shorthand for saying that God's purposes are at work through his power and his presence and that power and his presence has never been at work like it has been before. And it's present in who Jesus is. Jesus says that Jesus begins his ministry with that. And here at the beginning of his ministry, he wants everybody to know that notwithstanding you will mourn. This is our father's world. This place will suffer because every beauty suffers. And he is unequivocal about that. And he is unapologetic about that. And he is absolutely straightforward with that. And we will lean in then. Because we know he's not trying to sell us something. He's trying to be very honest here on the front end. The question is, though, what is in Jesus' mind when he says, blessed are those who mourn? Because he doesn't specify what we're mourning over. He doesn't say, you'll mourn about this, you'll mourn about that. I mean, he says that in other places. But here, he's just, you know, he's playing the very... Close to his chest, really succinct mode. Just little phrases. Blessed are those who mourn. About what, Jesus? Before we go projecting upon his words, whatever we might think we might be mournful of, maybe we should think a little bit about who he's first talking to. Who are those gathered here at the front end of his sermon? It's his disciples. Why would they have cause for mourning? Such that Jesus would need to say that to them, that there is actually blessing in that. Well, if you just kind of take it as a Jew from a very wide angle lens, a a historical perspective, if you're a Jew and you're in Israel, you're in occupied territory without invitation. You didn't ask them in. Rome is there, and Rome is only the most recent of empires that have come to dominate, decimate, and oppress your people. They're there. And so you know what it's like to be under the thumb of oppression, of indignity, of injustice. They get it, and that would be mournful. They were in Babylon. The northern kingdom is uh, exiled to Assyria. The southern kingdom gets exiled to Babylon, and they're there for hundreds of years, and then they get repatriated back to Israel. They're not in exile, but they're not at home. Home but not free. And so even even in the mind of a disciple at that time, if you're a Jew in first century Palestine under the oppression of a Roman Empire, you would have Psalm one thirty seven memorized. Because in that Psalm you hear the people, the psalmist singing, By the waters of Babylon there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion on the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. They knew what it was to be in exile. And who knows what's worse to not be uh, allowed to be in your country or to be in your country, but not feel at home. This was not how it was supposed to be. This was not how the story was supposed to unfold. And for that reason, his disciples might have known what he meant when he said, blessed are those who mourn. But but go from that wide angle and, and just just come a little narrower. If you're a disciple what would it mean? How would the idea of mourning resonate with you if you had chosen to follow Jesus? Well, it's not long after those dudes begin to follow Jesus that the one that had prepared the way for Jesus finds his head on a platter. Under oppression, he speaks truth to power and that power answers with a beheading. John the Baptist believes in the holy love of God. And calls out Herod the Tetrarch for what he has done. And that was met with persecution. That's a destiny for those who would follow Jesus. You might mourn that. You might also mourn the fact that if you're going to follow Jesus, that, that has a certain kind of adventure to it. Or, or an appearance of adventure to it. But in order for you to follow him and on that adventure, you gotta, you got to let go or sacrifice a lot of other things that you might have really enjoyed and loved doing. Those dudes who fished, they had to drop their nets. That tax collector, Matthew, who had found a pretty lucrative lifestyle in being a tax collector, he had to let that go. Every one of those, there was a sacrifice involved. Why? Because Jesus said, you're actually going to find something better if you go with me. And they had to take that on faith. And even if some of the things they gave up were good and of themselves, it was still a loss. And even if Jesus would promise... What I have for you is even greater than what you might give up. It's still not there presently. And so it's a way of mourning. The wide angle lens for why they might mourn, a narrower lens for why they might mourn. But but let's let's narrow in really tightly into just sort of the disciples' inner life. Because whereas we are here in the earliest phases of Jesus' public ministry... There were two of his disciples who at the end of Jesus's public ministry, when everything's culminated, they have a very similar experience with very different outcomes. The apostle Peter, you know, his story, you know, he is, you know, um, courageous. He says, I'll die with you. I'll follow you. And and even when Jesus says, "Now you're probably going to fall away. And he says, not me. I'll never do it. Right. So he's full of bravado. And then what happens? Jesus gets arrested and Peter does what? He flees. When people start asking him, you know the dude, right? And he goes, I don't even know him. He denies him wholeheartedly. And then he hears the rooster crow. And then he remembers what Jesus told him. And Peter is brought low. But there was another disciple that had a similar experience. His name was Judas. He didn't deny Jesus. He betrayed him. And there are whole sorts of theories about why Judas would have done that. Was he angry at Jesus? Was he impatient with Jesus? Was he trying to force Jesus' hand by bringing in the authorities so that Jesus would finally you know, come out of his sort of pedagogical posture and start acting in a way that you would think a Messiah would? Judas betrays Jesus into the hands of the authorities, and when Judas sees that Jesus is going to let them do it and realizes what he's done in the end, he too is brought low Two different people, two similar experiences, two very different outcomes, but both of them are struggling with one thing. How could I have done that? What would have possessed me to make those choices? How could I have walked this road for so long and then if at almost the drop of a hat... I turn around in the exact opposite direction and defy this one I have followed. Friends, uh, some would argue that the Beatitudes are not just little discrete statements that tell us one thing, nine things, but that they actually have a storyline to it. Such that if you're going to think and interpret what it means to be blessed are those who mourn, you have to kind of back up and remember what he said last week. Blessed are those who are what? Poor in spirit, who see themselves empty, who see themselves totally depleted of any kind of fidelity and faithfulness unto God. Why would one mourn? Why did Peter and Judas mourn? Because they saw the true condition of their own heart in that moment. They saw what faithlessness looks like in themselves and wondered, how could this be so? They were mourning their sins. wide angle, narrower angle, narrowest angle, all sorts of reasons why Jesus might want to say to these disciples on the front end, blessed are those who mourn. You might have some relevance to some of that. You you might share in some of the reasons for why they might be mourning. You might look around at your world, at our world, and think it is on fire. How did we get here? How, is, how do wars continue and racism prevail and all sorts of hatred amplified by all of our technologies? How did we get here? And you think to yourself, this will never change. And in you, in a sense, maybe you're not weeping over it, but there's this undercurrent of, really? This is not how it's supposed to be. Maybe you feel that. Maybe for others of you, the tears of death are still fresh on your cheeks. And you know full well that what you have lost cannot be replaced. And you feel what mourning really is. The expression of the realization that your desires have been denied. That's what mourning is. That's what suffering is. Your desires have been denied. And for some, irretrievably. Some of you feel that mourning as a consequence of the death before you. Some of you may feel a mourning as a consequence of loss of other ways. Loss of relationships. Relationships that are broken and you say no way forward for them to ever be mended. Losses regarding opportunities. Things that you saw. Things that you held on to. Things that you let slip through your fingers. Or opportunities that never came and you feel like they are irretrievable. Some of you feel losses as a consequence of, of just realities that you can't recover. Or of capacities that you once had that don't ever seem to be coming back any time. You mourn that. It's a desire denied. But you may also mourn because you find yourself somewhere on the spectrum in between Peter and Judas. Somewhere between denying him and betraying him. And you wonder, (laughs) why am I like that? Why do I continue to do that? Why do I do what I very not want to do? Why do I do the very thing that I hate? Paul asks in Romans chapter seven. Why is that true of me? Why do I go there so easily? I read an article this week from somebody that said, you know, sometimes I'm not sure if I want to read war and peace or if I just should be, if I just should want to read war and peace. Like, I know that War and Peace is a great piece of literature in, in part of me, right? And and so maybe, maybe I really want to do that. But maybe it's just that I just want to think of myself as somebody that would want to read it. St. Teresa of Avila from several centuries ago, a nun, she said quite candidly, Lord, I don't love you. Lord, I don't even want to love you. But Lord, I want to want to love you. That's us. That's our heart from time to time. We want to want to love him. We want to want to follow him. And yet look deeply inside of us. And we wonder where is that heart? Where are we on that spectrum? We want to be like Eric Little was. You know Eric Little from Chariots of Fire? You, you know that, yes, I, God made me fast. He made me for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. We all know that line. But you don't know the story of what happened afterwards. He, he goes to the mission field in China. And in time, he ends up in an internment camp in Japan. And there in the internment camp, when everything has fallen apart his whole storyline has been rudely interrupted what happens to eric little he becomes the guy that becomes everybody's father figure he's the guy that teaches the kids how to play chess he's the guy that always throws together a soccer match on the on the room uh, on the fly he's the guy that helps sing songs he's the guy that teaches everybody in the internment camp this song be still my soul the lord is on your side wait patiently he's that guy even in the midst of everything turning bleak for him, he's that guy that radiates. And, oh, I want that. But how many times do I go, man, I'm not that. And I grieve it. And when we think of our own sin, of our own incapacity to understand him, of our own faithlessness before him. Doesn't it make sense that if if, if you know that, that sin offends God, don't, doesn't it make sense that you would also mourn it? Uh, before we had kids, there was, a, there was a kid in our neighborhood in Oak Cliff, Texas. He would kind of come over every once in a while, and we would just kind of take him under our wing, and we'd just you know, hang out, and he's kind of a, a, a difficult situation. And, and one day he came over, and he said, yeah, I got busted by the cops. And, and we said, oh, uh, sorry to hear that. Glad to see you're out. Um, uh, w- what was it for? And he said, well, I stole a bike. And, and we said, oh, wow, great. Um, what'd you learn? And he said, um, I learned not to get caught. Um, that's how some of us think of our sin. You know, sin is only as grievous as when we get caught in the midst of it. And yet, isn't it true that once we begin to grieve it, we've actually begun to see the beauty of its opposite. The hard truth that Jesus is trying to get across here early is this. Everybody mourns, including those who take their rest in the one who is both good and powerful. But that's not the only news he has for us. He not only has hard news, he also has heartening news. And the heartening news comes down to what he says in the promise on the second, on the back end of the beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn. Why? For they shall be comforted. Martin Luther said, just begin to be a Christian and you will know what it means to sorrow. Sorrow. Because you begin to see inwardly and you begin to see outwardly and you think, what is their hope? Where is the hope? Jesus is offering us the hope here. What is the heartening news in response to the hard news? That there is an even greater comfort, an even greater consolation, both in and on the other side of the morning. The heartening news is that there is an even greater comfort, an even greater consolation, both in and on the other side of the morning. And he means that in at least two senses. The Greek word there for comfort is the Greek word paraklesis. Comes from the, the root parakaleo. Bookmark that. We'll get to it in a second. Yeah, some of you already know. Comfort, Greek word, paraklesis. And when he says that there is a comfort, he says, first of all, for you, they will be comforted. That there is a comfort that is coming. That is future, but that is real. And that there is a sense in which, just as Sam Ganji asks Gandalf, will it be true that everything sad is going to become untrue? Jesus would say to us, yes, that is the truth. And if you've been around church for any length of time, even if you've looked at church from, a, from the distance, you know that's where we go. That's, where we, that's what we believe. Every one of these Beatitudes has at least one eye on the furthest horizon. Not entirely, But on the furthest horizon, one eye, because there is a future that awaits us, which is nicely captured in what you have heard and what you'll hear at funerals pretty often from Revelation 21 when it says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself. But we will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain any anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. That's the heartening news. That what awaits will give every reason you have to be mourning the knowledge that it will not endure. That is the future sense of this comfort, of this periklesis, which, which anything that you know that is coming or believe that is coming, that, 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 that thought, it spills back into your present. Some of you have once had a birthday party and you knew it was coming. And the knowledge that it was still like six weeks out or in the case of my kids uh, thought nine months out. That that thought actually had an effect on your present. The arrival of something good, the anticipation of an event or whatever it might be, a milestone for which you will give thanks. That future thing has a present quality to it. But if I can press a little bit further into the nature of that present quality, Jesus is not just talking about comfort that is strictly of a future in its orientation. When he uses that word paraclesis, if you know, if you stuck around any length of time, you know that there's a, another word from that is that, that that same Greek word is used in another setting. That the comfort that Jesus speaks of is greater than just a future comfort. That comfort has to do with something that is already in play. Because that same Greek word is the word that Jesus uses to speak of one that he would send. The one who was the paraclete. And the paraclete is the one whom we know as the third person of the Trinity who goes by the other name of the Holy Spirit of God. And if you read the Gospel of John, you know that Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit as the one who has come not only to remind us of everything that Jesus had said. But to let us know that love is here. That though you will have trouble in this world, Jesus says, love is here. You are not alone in it. Some of you have been sick. Some of you have been with those who have been sick. And even in your sickness, to be with someone or to have someone come sit at your bedside, even if your pain does not abate, there is a quality to having someone with you that you are not alone in it. You know that. You've been there. To know that you're not alone in the morning is to experience a kind of comfort now that tempers the reasons for your tears. Jesus is here to say, I have sent one who will be that for you, who will dwell within you, and who will mediate my presence to you through the company of the saints in whom he also already dwells. That comfort has a future quality. That comfort has a present quality. And that has an effect In the most profound of ways, because the most profound, the most poignant expression of this Greek word of comfort shows up in what Paul says in his second letter to the church at Corinth. He says, and you know it, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. This comfort comes to us as a function of what we believe about a future that spills back into our present. This comfort comes to us to know that love is real and here in the presence of his Holy Spirit. And it is that comfort that allows us to extend it forward. You see that brilliantly in miniature in this little short clip I want to show you from a very odd film that I almost hesitate to introduce because it's built on a premise that will make you go, <gasps> And yet the rest of the film is absolutely beautiful. It's the film Lars and the Real Girl. Anybody ever see it? Yeah, okay. So I've got, I've got cover. If you're not sure, come ask me. It's, it's built on an almost uh, premise. But if you're going to be involved in parish ministry around here, I, I will make it mandatory. But if you want to know what a parish looks like, here's what a parish looks like. Here is a man, a grown man, who is deeply disaffected by something in his past, and he orders a product, a doll, and that doll is inanimate. And everybody thinks, what has he got the doll for? Until we realize that he begins to imagine that this doll is real and that she is actually a missionary from Argentina for real. And he treats her as a lady, as a real woman. And he takes her everywhere. And the whole community realizes that he, something is up. He is, something is getting worked out in his soul by what he's doing here for this lifeless doll. And here in a film, here towards the end of it, this doll in his mind is dying. And he doesn't know what to do with his mourning. And the community has come around him to show him something. And to tell him something. Bianca We sent Gus and Karen to the movies They didn't want to leave you two no, I'm glad that they I'm glad they left I feel terrible that all this is happening So close to the baby coming that's how life is, Lars. Everything at once. We brought casseroles. Thank you. Um, is there something that I should be doing right now? No, dear. You eat. We came over to sit. That's what people do in tragedy strikes. They come over and sit. Don't you feel a little better? There in his morning, this little Lutheran community comes and surrounds him and realizes that he is working out something deep in him and they are just going to be a presence unto him. That's what a parish is. And whatever he is mourning, their presence mediates something true that gives strength. Because all of those ladies in that room had at one time been where he is now. And they've come to extend that kindness and that comfort because they get it. That's the heartening news that Jesus comes to bring to us, that there is a comfort that helps us, puts us one eye on one horizon that we can only see by faith, that spills back into our present, that we might rest in that. But it's also a comfort that comes to us by his spirit. And that spirit is mediated in all sorts of ways. That's the heartening news. And I don't think any of this is new for you. The, the hard news about everybody mourning, we all get that. That's not hard to swallow. It's this heartening news that makes you go, I want to swallow that. I really do. I want to bite down on it. But how do I bite down on it? How do I sit in that chair? That's why you have to end where Jesus ends to hear the highest news. The hard news we get, the heartening news we want to get, it's the highest news that gives us the strength perhaps to bite down on the heartening news. And the highest news is this. Your greatest consolation comes through his deepest mourning. Say it again. Your greatest consolation, your greatest comfort comes through his deepest mourning. Why does Jesus ever weep in the New Testament? He weeps over Jerusalem because they would not listen. They would not entertain that he, in fact, might be a visitation from God. He weeps over that. He weeps at the tomb of Lazarus. Why? He knew that Lazarus was about to rise from the dead. So why is he crying? Because he realizes that Lazarus is a picture of us all held in bondage to sin and to guilt and to death. And that is a weepful, a mournful thing for him. He weeps over that. And why does he weep again in a garden? Because he knows what his task is. But he wonders if only for a moment is there any other way. But not my will but yours be done. Track the reasons why Jesus weeps. And then you know what is our greatest concern for mourning. It's an estrangement from all that's good. It is settling for something that is less than good. It is thinking that the highest good either doesn't exist or isn't worth worth knowing or living. And Jesus weeps over that. And what Jesus does in his tears is the beginning of the end of everything that causes us to mourn. He enters into suffering, into his mourning. He begins to weep for us that it might be the beginning of the end that leads to everything that we mourn for. And so by his living, he shows us that any sacrifice that we might make on his behalf was worth a sacrifice. And by his dying... He shows us that every sin that we might have committed would be covered by his blood, full stop, covered, forgiven. And by his rising, he shows us that he has made the kill shot against death. That we are just waiting for that thing to wriggle until it's over and dead. And by the sending of his spirit, he's come to show us that he love is here, even with us, even in our tears, even when our mourning. That's the highest truth. Our greatest consolation comes as a consequence of his deepest mourning. What then do we do with all of that? The hard truth, the heartening truth, the highest truth. How do we take comfort in our mourning such that it is to us a place of flourishing? I think it's three really short things. The first one is really easy mourn in context. Paul writes to the church of Thessalonica. They've heard a rumor that the resurrection of all the dead has already happened. And they think, I've missed it. And Paul is saying, don't worry. Hasn't happened yet. You're good. Those who have fallen asleep, fear not. They are only asleep. And I do not want you to grieve as those without hope. What is implicit in his suggestion, in his encouragement, that you should grieve. Don't deny your grief. Don't deny the reasons that you're mourning. Shakespeare, he puts it this way. Do I have that? Give sorrow to words. The grief that does not speak knits up the overwrought heart and bids it break. Not to mourn is not to love. Not to mourn the loss of one you've left, of loved is, is to, to cut yourself off from the love that you had for them. Not to mourn your sin is not to... To grapple with what it really is and how it is a is a defiance of what beauty is and the defiance of what good is not to mourn it is to misunderstand it. You have to grieve anything that you might mourn and you have to give voice to it if you can. So don't deny it. But also be aware of how grief has the capacity to be indulged. I have scrambled looking for an illustration of what I'm trying to say by this. And this one may work and it may not. But fire hoses, when they're on, can be very helpful. You hold them, you put out fires. That's what fire hoses do. And they're powerful and they're strong and they're effective. And unless you accept and express your grief, you are torching yourself on the inside by not using it. But guess what? You let go of a fire hose that's on, the tool becomes something perhaps even more dangerous than the affliction itself. And grief is full of emotion and emotion begets emotion and grief begets grief such that if you are unaware of how grief works, it can become like a fire hose that you have let go. John Flavel Was a Puritan. He lost three wives, one of which was in childbirth, lost the wife and the baby. So he knows a thing or two about grief, and he wrote a book about his reflections about grief called Facing Grief, and he had to be very candid with anyone, those who are grieving. He said, By fretting and discontent, you do yourself more injury than all your afflictions could do. Your own discontent is that which arms your troubles with a sting. You make your burden heavy by struggling under it. He is not saying, suck it up. He is not saying, get over it. Here's a man that knows what grief is about. He is only saying, If you do not mourn in the context of your greatest grief and your greatest consolation, it will be like a fire hose that will hit you in the head. You have to stay near the story. The story of Jesus' greatest grief and how it bought us our greatest consolation. And if that's hard, and some days it is, when you're not sure you can believe that at all, and faith feels like a fairy tale, May I let you hear a word from Flannery O'Connor, who said this about faith and pain. I think there is no suffering greater than what is caused by the doubts of those who want to believe. I know what torment this is, but I can only see it in myself anyway, as the process by which faith is deepened. It is much harder to believe than not to believe. If you feel you can't believe, you must at least do this. Keep an open mind. Keep it open toward faith. Keep wanting it. Keep asking for it. And leave the rest to God. Faith is a gift. Faith is a grace. Faith we ask for. Faith is something he bestows. And especially when it comes to mourning, we must keep an open mind and keep asking him for the strength in which to persevere. Mourn in context. But when you mourn, you must give thanks. You must give thanks for how what you have lost in time connects you to what remains in eternity. A few weeks ago, I opened our service by referencing an article that had been written by that Duke University professor a couple weeks ago, Kate Bowler. In that article, she sums it up like this. The terrible gift of a terrible illness is that it has, in fact, taught me to live in the moment. But when I look at these mementos, I realize that I am learning more than to seize the day. In losing my future, the mundane began to sparkle. The things I love, the things I should love, become clearer and brighter. This is transcendence. The past and the future experienced together in moments where what? I can see a flicker of eternity. As you mourn the hope that you will not see fulfilled so far as you know, unless God intervenes in a powerful way, you must learn and I must learn to give thanks for what I am losing in time connects me to what is eternal and cannot be lost. The last way you mourn to find comfort, we come full circle. We hear C.S. Lewis one more time, because at the end of that memoir, he wants us all to know that even as you mourn the things that defy explanation, the things for which no reason would ever be good enough that you could ever imagine, you must know that you are still have a reason for hope, such that when C.S. Lewis thought long and hard about losing his wife, he came to this later conclusion. When I lay these questions before God, I get no answer, but a rather special sort of no answer. It is not the locked door. It is more like a silent, certainly not uncompassionate gaze, as though he shook his head, not in refusal, but waving the question like, Peace, child, you don't understand. Job never got his questions answered. Job never got back fully replaced what he had lost. But Job, though he had heard of God, says later that he had seen God like he hadn't seen him before. I don't know what that looks like for each one of us. But here are testimonies of those who have discovered that there is a comfort greater than our mourning. There is a future that we might lay claim to, which has a moment in our present. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's pray. May it be unto us as you have said. Amen.